Well, we are uh, find ourselves in Galatians chapter 2 uh, this morning. Speaking of the preserved gospel, this gospel that has been preached now in seed form in the Old Testament, progressively getting more explicit, but finding its explicit form in the life and the ministry of Christ has now been preached uh, by Christ and by his apostles and by all of those who have believed in Christ after him for now 2,000 years. This gospel is worth everything to us. It points us to the person who has saved us, to the person who has changed us. We look to him. We look to our, to our captain, to the author and the perfecter of faith, Christ Jesus. That's who we look to, and we love him. Life is meaningless. Life is hopeless without Christ. It's empty. And so this gospel that was preached is worth fighting for. And it has not been preserved by accident, but it has been preserved through the faithful ministries of men of God who have come down through the centuries, faithful believers, men and women, who have fidelity to the gospel, believe in it, believe in its truth, and as a result, this gospel has been preached and has been preserved faithfully from generation to generation. And we are so blessed now to be in our generation as we have heard this gospel preached to us. And if we are believers, we've had our ears opened up. We've had our hearts opened up to receive this precious gospel, this truth. Oh, yes, we're small in number. Believers are even small in number compared to the world's population. But we have the truth. And it is worth everything to us. And we thank God for men like Paul, who receives Christ on the road to Damascus. We see that in Acts chapter 9, receives the gospel, his Life is forever changed, and he's instantly driven into the desert. And there's this pattern that we begin to see in Scripture where there's an experience with God, an encounter with God, and all of a sudden, as soon as that person has an encounter with God, they are driven into the desert. You would think that everything would be uh, exciting and uh, involve perhaps lots of people. We have experienced the things of God, and all of a sudden we go right into tons of relationships and right into this, this major ministry or something like that with God's leaders, and that's not the pattern we see. The pattern that we see in Scripture is uh, somebody comes to an understanding of who God is, and they're dropped to their knees, and they say, God, I, I recognize who, who you are. Holy, holy, holy is the triune God. He's holy. He's thrice holy. The Father is holy. The Son is holy. The Spirit is holy. And instantly, he, the Holy Spirit drives uh, these, these great men of God into a desert season in their lives. By the way, I must wonder if that even happens with whole churches. Where God brings about a move of his, his Holy Spirit in the beginning and 
then brings that church, as it were, into a desert season. And it seems like there's no doubt in many ways that is what is going on as God is, is separating, is uh, bringing back this vision of holiness, this vision of sanctification, this vision of who God is. And oftentimes that comes in the, the sufferings of life, in the dry seasons of life, in the desert seasons of our life, in the desert seasons of our church's life as we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, we recognize that you haven't taken us into a physical desert, but God, you've brought us into a spiritual one. And perhaps you're there right now. Perhaps you are, perhaps you are holding on to the fact that you have, you have had an encounter with God, the living God. And all of a sudden, after this unbelievable encounter that you know is true, and by the way, press on, press on. Don't give up. Press on. And you will press on if you're a believer. You will make it through every season of life if you're a believer. But oftentimes in the believer's life, he has an incredible experience with God. And all of a sudden, right after that experience with God and things seem to be going very powerfully and very well, he drives them uh, immediately into the desert season of their life. And this is the season where they learn as a church, a church learns or a person learns holy dependence upon the Lord. Lord, you're everything. You've got to move in our life. And so if you're in a desert season of your life, don't despair. Don't, don't think that something strange has come upon you. Things aren't working out the way that you thought that they would work out. Things seem rather dry in this season of your life or in the season of this church's life, he's forming warriors. He's, he's forming people with spines. He's, he's forming people who have the image of Christ. And we see this pattern over and over again. We see it, of course, in the life of Paul, where Paul gets saved and then he's driven, as it were, by the Spirit right into Arabia for three years. And he says, I don't care if I'm known or not known. I just want to know Christ. I just want to know Christ. I remember uh, talking to a, a friend of mine who had some real gifts. Gifts that could have possibly led to perhaps a call into the ministry. And I remember sitting down. This, is, this has got to be close to 20 years ago now. And I remember sitting down with him talking about the ministry. And he said, you know what? He said, all I want to do is I want to learn to be a good husband and a good father. And he was in this season of life where that was, it was a, a dry season, but that was the focus. Oh, what a holy, holy ambition, holy focus. And so as believers, we are in this season of, of relative obscurity where we say, Lord, we thank you for this powerful season in our life, but now you've driven us into this season of, of dryness and barrenness. And so, Lord, we will wait on you. If a person doesn't know Christ and all of a sudden they come into a season like that, they'll quit. They'll quit. 
because what they had in the first place was never real. So they'll they'll throw it all away and they'll say, well, it's it, it was this and and it was that and and of course all the excuses come in. And we need to hear as believers, we need to see this clear pattern that is taught over and over again in Scripture where God does something in our life and then he says, okay, I'm driving you into the season. It's time to give everything up. And you say, well, does that mean we have to sell everything? Not necessarily. Maybe it does, though. But this season in our life where we just say, Lord, we whatever it is you want from us, you can, you can have it. Now you talk about where do you see this pattern, and I, again, we could talk about example after example in Scripture. And we won't turn to all these Scriptures, but if you remember back with me to Abram, who became Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God shows up and he has an incredible experience with God, and then God says, listen, Abraham, listen, Abe, I want you to take everything that you have and I want you to move. I want you to go to a land where you don't even know where you're going. You want to talk about a different season of life. You, 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 would, you would think that God would say to him, now listen, you've had this encounter with me, I've spoken to you now, just continue on with your business. But God doesn't say that. God says, okay, I've shown myself to you, I've revealed myself to you, now I'm calling you to actually do something. I'm calling you to a, a unique season of your life. We as believers often think something is going desperately wrong if prayers aren't being the, answered the way that we think that they should. Or we wonder where God is at times. Do you think Job wondered where God was? If you, if you remember Job, he, in the whole book, he's struggling with God. By the way, that's what Israel means. The name Israel means to wrestle with God. We have this, we have this wonderful ability and even this calling in the Scripture to wrestle with the Lord. Have you ever, have you ever wrestled with the Lord? I'm back and forth. He, he invites you, by the way, to wrestle with him. What a concept. That's the very that's what Jacob's name was changed to Israel, to, to wrestle with God. In fact, Jacob wrestled with God. But if you remember, Abraham says, Yes, Lord, he's the, the father of our of our faith. He says, Yes, Lord, you're you're calling me to something new. Yes, Lord. I'll do it. Yes, Lord. Remember Joseph? Joseph, Genesis chapter 37. Joseph has a dream. Credible encounter with God, all his brothers, even his father, is going to bow down to him. And then right away, what happens to Joseph? Everything goes well, mansion, all that kind of stuff, new car shows up. Well, maybe at that time, new camels, something, new, new donkey. So for happy birthday to you, here's a new donkey. Okay. No, that's not what happens. New dry season of life, instantly sold into slavery. You can look it up. Genesis 37, encounter with God, slavery. How fun is that? And now we're beginning to see a, a pattern. We see this over and over again through the scripture. God brings us to an encounter with him, and then he says, no, no, I'm going to put you in hiding for a while. I just want to know you. I want to know that you're about my glory. I, I want to know that you're going to follow me through the thick and the thin of Life. I'm going to prepare you for the way I'm going to use you. So we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, in this hidden season of life, hands up, raised to the Lord. Lord, I'll do anything you want. Hide me. Hide me under the shadow of your wing. We just pray to the Lord. We, 
we, we wait on the Lord. In the hiddenness of God, waiting on him, like Abraham, going where he didn't know he was where he was going to go, like Joseph, I had this incredible dream. Everything with my family is going to be unbelievable. And next thing you know, he's being thrown into a pit and then he's being sold to slave traders. How about Moses? Is Moses any different? He's a ruler in Egypt. He's being trained by Pharaoh, has all the education any person could want. He's gone to Harvard. He's gone to Yale. He knows everything. And then all of a sudden, impulsively, by the way, this is kind of a little bit different because God doesn't have an encounter with him at first. The little bit of impulsiveness, he's going to make things happen on his own. And by the way, that plagued him later on, if you remember. Instead of speaking to the rock, he struck it. And so he has this, 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 this thing that is not dealt with, and we could talk about that, but this thing that's not dealt with originally and therefore it carries, carries on. But he sees the way his brothers are being treated, these Hebrews. And he rises up and he kills an Egyptian. And what happens? He himself flees into the wilderness. And it's there in the wilderness. A little bit different, but same kind of thinking. It's there in the wilderness. God shows up in a, in a burning bush. And Moses isn't in the wilderness for six months or a year or ten years or 20 years, he's in the wilderness for 40 years. That's a long time. That's a long season of life. But what is God doing? He's preparing him. He's hiding him, and he's preparing him for the future. And Moses is willing to wait, as all men and women of God are. They're willing to say, I'll wait on you. I'll wait on you. In fact, Lord, it's my joy to be with you in the desert place. We have a horrible theology that says if you're a real if you're a real believer, you're never going to go to the desert season of your life. You're just gonna you're just gonna go from great experience to great experience, and all of a sudden things in our life they begin to look a whole lot like a like a desert. And we say, what is going on? Rest assured, this is the pattern of this is the pattern of God. So we talk about Moses, and we could talk about him in Exodus chapter 3, that, that pattern that is seen there. How about our Lord? Would he be any different? No. In fact, he is the, the very pinnacle of this pattern. He's baptized in the River Jordan. He comes up. The Holy Spirit descends. The Trinity. We see this wonderful, this beautiful picture of the Trinity. The Father speaks from heaven. And, of course, you have the sun and the water. You have three persons and yet one God. And so there's this marvelous experience. Can you imagine Jesus as he comes up out the water, a dove descends, a father, the Father speaking from heaven. This is a, an incredible experience from God, wonderful experience from God. You know what Mark chapter 1 says? And immediately the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, drove him into the wilderness. Isn't that something? Our, our Lord. This pattern we see over and over again in the scripture, and to not think it's going to be a pattern in our lives is to be extremely presumptuous. It is going to be a pattern in our lives. And of course, we see Paul's life. Paul is converted, and the Spirit drives him into Arabia for three years as he hears from God, as he's studying the scriptures, as he's learning the things of the Spirit as the Spirit is so richly teaching him. 
And this man of God is a man who fights for the gospel. And it's because of strength, the persecuted strength of a man like this, that this gospel was preserved for us in its purest form, the very form that we hold in our hands, the very word of God. I, I want to do a little bit of review here where we've been just so we can understand what is going on here. There's, there's a presumption here of what's going on here in Galatians chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 2. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand and that he presumes that we will understand is that we will recognize his apostolic authority. We will recognize from his life, as we've said, from his doctrine, from the historic record that we have here in the New Testament, that he is an apostle. And we receive that number two, that we will understand God's gospel. We get it. We, we hear the gospel, and we're not sitting here scratching our head going, this is so confusing, we can't figure this out, but we actually understand it. Thirdly, that Paul's gospel is the only gospel. There aren't many different gospels, but the gospel that was given to him by the Lord is the only gospel. It is the true gospel. There are many different false gospels, and these, as Paul has said, are not gospels at all, but this is the only true one. Fourthly, the gospel is to be loved and embraced. Maybe we just need to ask ourselves that question this morning. Do we love the gospel? Do we see it as the only hope? What Christ has done for us to bring a people back to himself through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And we reject all other false gospels. This is why we're not afraid to name names. This is why we're not afraid to talk about bad doctrine. It's not because we're on some high horse. It's because the scripture commands us to. And we have seen it as the height of pride and arrogance for someone to say, well, let's just accept all the different messages and we can't figure this out. That is the height of pride, not humility. Number five, and lastly, that it's worth fighting for. Contend for the gospel. Isn't that what Jude wrote? He said, you know what? I wanted to write to you about our common salvation but I had to write to you that you would contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Jude in the only chapter. It is worth fighting for and it is preserved through faithful believers like you and I. It's not just the apostles and it's not just preachers, but it's people who have their noses in the Bible, who understand what the gospel is, who fight for the gospel in winsome and in tactful and in bold and not cowardly ways, who stand for the gospel when it's not popular, who have come out of the desert seasons of their life filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with knowledge, the knowledge, the intimate experiential knowledge of God, who know him and are willing to contend for the faith in the workplace and at school and uh, on the highways and the byways, not just in religious institutions, not just in church buildings, but in our everyday interaction with people who need to know Christ. And now we come to chapter 2. And Paul is going to exclaim to us by demonstration and by clear teaching that his authority and his gospel are the same as the other apostles. 
This is very important to understand. Paul is, is teaching us he is not a second-class apostle to Peter. Now, we, we could possibly think in terms like this because we think, like many did in that day, well, you know, Peter walked with the Lord. He, he actually talked with the Lord. He went through all the different miracles. He saw all the different miracles with the Lord. So did John. So did Andrew. So, so did all these different apostles. But where was Paul? Paul wasn't around. He was alive at the time, of course, but he wasn't actually walking with the Lord. And so the temptation might be to say, well, perhaps Paul is on a secondary level. You have, you have these guys up here, and Paul is kind of down here. And so in chapter 1, Paul exclaims and he demonstrates the fact that he is independent of them and not needing them in the sense of their consent. And now he's demonstrating here in chapter 2 his authority and the gospel he preaches are exactly identical. His authority is the same as John's. His authority is the same as Peter's. The gospel that he preaches is the same gospel that they preach. I guess what we could say in essence is Paul did not need the other apostles' authorization or permission. He didn't go to them and say, hey, will you authorize my ministry? I want, I want to be like you guys. He didn't need their permission to become an apostle. He wants us to know that when Peter talks, it's the same as Paul talking. When John talks, it's the same as Paul talking. There is no difference in their gospel, in their message, and there is no difference in their authority. He would demonstrate to us, and we would have a recognition, that he is their peer in every way. He is on the same level as them. So if we come away from this and we think Paul is on a slightly different level, then we have missed the point here that Paul is teaching us here in Galatians chapter 2. When we go to chapter 2 and look at verse 1, it says, then after 14 years, and, and by the way, this isn't 14 years after the three years. We know that he was three years in Arabia, so if you had 14 plus 3, you get 17 years. But it seems best to say that this is 14 years from his conversion. So when he was talking about three years, he was talking about three years from his conversion. When he's talking about 14 years, he's not adding it on to the three years, but he's simply saying 14 years from his conversion. It says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. It seems best, uh, he didn't, it seems best to understand this as he didn't go up to Jerusalem a number of times, and now he's talking about this most recent time, although the language could be saying that. It could be skipping some visits here. But it seems like what he's clearly saying here is this is his second time to Jerusalem. So the first time, if you remember, he goes up to Jerusalem and he kind of meets with Peter as a tourist, and evidently they had talked about all sorts of different things. And now he's talking about this second visit. So he's gone to Jerusalem, and he's remembering back, so he's been preaching the gospel for some time, 14 years. And by the way, this isn't necessarily 14 whole years. It could have been 12 full years and then parts of uh, two other years, something along those lines. So it could have been 12 and a half years. But 
Nevertheless, it says here clearly it was 14 years, so it could have been a full 14 years. And he takes Titus along with him. That's verse 1. And I went up because of a revelation and set before them. So he's going up and he's going to talk to some of the apostles, uh, Peter and John and the Lord's brother James, or we could rightly say Jacob. So he receives this revelation from God. And we'll see here in a second that it wasn't only given to him, but it was also confirmed by the church. And he's going to go up now to Jerusalem for a second visit. So he gets saved. He goes into Arabia for three years. He goes up to Jerusalem. He meets with Peter. He sees some of the other uh, Christians and so on. He sees James, the Lord's brother. But other than that, not much. And now he comes 14 years later after his conversion. He comes back again. This is his second trip back to Jerusalem. And he doesn't just go to Jerusalem because it's a nice vacation spot. He's going back to Jerusalem because of a revelation. In other words, the Holy Spirit had spoken to him. And I went up because of a revelation, verse 2, and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, so these are the influential apostles. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, if you remember, Paul is called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Those are non-Jewish people. Any Gentile, if you're seated in this room and you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. So there's two divisions here, Gentiles. Paul was called to the Gentiles. Peter was called to the Jews primarily. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, biblical scholars try to figure out what visit is this talking about? He's going back to Jerusalem. And some have thought that perhaps this is the Jerusalem council from Acts chapter 15. There's this big council over how Gentiles are to be received and what they are to believe in order to receive Christ. And there is a decision that is made there with the Apostolic Council. And so some people say that this visit here that Paul is on is that visit in Acts chapter 15. However, this, this visit is much more, much more private. It's not public. There's no public council. There's no public declaration. This is a more private, a more informal meeting with the apostles. And if this was the Jerusalem council, it would be hard to believe how Peter would compromise, as he would. We'll see here later in chapter 2 in the coming weeks. He would compromise and even separate himself from Gentiles. Why would Peter do that after the Jerusalem council if that is what is being spoken of here in Galatians chapter 2. Peter would have fallen a long way if they make this declaration about how to handle Gentiles and what Gentiles must do and all of this in order to come into the faith. And Peter is a part of that apostolic decision. And then all of a sudden he is now falling later on in Galatians chapter 2. So it doesn't seem to fit this visit. In fact, Paul nowhere here in Galatians 
relies on Acts chapter 15. He doesn't specifically talk about the council, therefore it doesn't seem like it has happened. So the question is, when is, when is Paul visiting Jerusalem here? Because it's very clear here, that's what he's saying. After 14 years, I went to Jerusalem one time. Then I went to Jerusalem after 14 years a second time. That's what the text seems to be saying. If you flip over to Acts chapter 11, verse 30, it fits a, a different visit a, a little bit better. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11, verse 30, and we'll, we'll back up just a few verses too. So Paul is a believer. He's been a believer for some time now. Verse 27, this visit would be, obviously it's in Acts chapter 11. This is before the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And so what we're saying is it seems like it fits better here. What is going on in Galatians chapter 2 and the visit in Galatians 2 fits this visit in Acts chapter 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit. So we see in Galatians that Paul... Uh, has a revelation or says there is a revelation. Evidently he gets it, but also others get it, including Agabus here. For, foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, that there's this, there's this famine. And we, we haven't struggled with that in our Town, but if you can imagine, no food at Wegmans, no food at Aldi, no food at Price Chopper. And so we as believers are starting to get, get more and more hungry. And so what is going on here is there's going to be relief that is, is sent to this church in Jerusalem. So the disciples determine, everyone according to his own ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders, here it is, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So here comes Barnabas and here comes Saul to Judea, to Jerusalem. And it seems best to understand what, Acts, what Galatians chapter 2 is speaking of when it talks about this second visit, this visit to Jerusalem. That it's not talking about Paul visiting Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, but it's actually talking about him visiting in Acts chapter 11. By the way, Acts chapter 11, verse 30, it fits the flow of Galatians. There's no public council here. He's just privately meeting with them about famine relief. And he says, oh, oh by the way, uh, just so you know, the... The apostles recognized my gospel as I said it before them. What's he saying? I'm, I'm their equal. I'm their peer. I, I didn't go to Jerusalem on this visit to, to get their permission. I didn't come to get their authorization. I didn't come to get their consent. In fact, I'm coming down for famine relief. And oh, by the way, as I met with them privately, they recognized the message that I was preaching is the true message. And by the way, guys, just so everybody knows, that's what Paul is saying. It's not these super apostles or false teachers that are recognizing my gospel and my authority, but it's men like John are recognizing it. 
So when you say that, that carries weight. It's men like Peter who are recognizing it, that he had not run in vain. Can you imagine if he had gone to this this um, this city in Jerusalem and they said, no, no, we don't agree with that. There would have been a major conflict within the church. Major problems would have brewed. There would have been great division, but of course that wasn't the case. Why? Because they're preaching the same gospel and all of these apostles are on the same level. In fact... Paul takes a Gentile with him because this would be the big division within the church. How are Gentiles going to be accepted into the church? And so Paul takes with him a Gentile. Look with me at verse 3. He says this, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So Gather Call calls this a test case. Paul brings... Titus, and wouldn't it have been something if they said, listen, Titus is a Gentile. He's come to faith in Christ. But if he's a true believer, he needs to be circumcised. And that's what these false teachers were beginning to say. They were saying, not only do you need to have faith in Christ, that's all well and good. They would say that they were Christians as well. But you need to also do something. You need to be circumcised, and you have to obey the law of Moses. So it's, it's kind of like this Catholic teaching. It's faith in Christ, but you have to be a good person as well. Or it's faith in Christ, but you have to be circumcised. Or it's faith in Christ, but you also have to obey the Mosaic rule. And Paul says, listen, when I, when I came to Jerusalem... And, oh, by the way, I happened to be talking to these other apostles... I brought Titus with me, and there is a, an epistle with Titus's name on it in our, in our Bibles. And, oh, did he stand for the truth. This, this man was a man of genuine faith. This was a, a man of genuine power. And Paul says, when I brought Titus to Jerusalem, just so that you understand, all of those who are reading this letter, uh, they didn't say to me, Peter didn't come to me, and John didn't come to me and say, listen, that's all well and good that you're preaching this gospel, but Titus, we, we've noticed Titus is a Gentile, and he has got to get circumcised. Paul says that's not the case. When I came to Jerusalem and I met in private with these apostles, they recognized me as their peer. When I brought Titus along with me, this Gentile, they didn't make him get circumcised. Why? Because my authority is on the same level as these apostles, and my gospel is identical to the gospel that they preach. What is Paul saying? This is proof of, of acceptance or solidarity. These guys are all on the same page. You can't crack them. Same authority, same message, no division, same truth, same Christ. He says, I want to warn you, it's not a problem with me and these apostles. We're all apostles. We all preach the same message. But there have been false brothers. That, that is, there have been those who are heretical. There are false teachers who have been secretly brought into the church. And anytime you have a gospel church that is preaching the truth, there's always going to be those that come in that try to subvert the truth, 
that might look like Christians, and they might even say that they're Christians, Christians, but they are subversive. They are divisive. They're not really on board with the apostolic program. And this is why, over and over again in the church, what we need to do is say, what does the Bible say? We need to continue to get back to apostolic authority over and over again. We have a real issue today with authority and who we're going to follow in the church. Just a few days ago, I, I turned on a Ted Koppel special. Remember him with Nightline? And in the late 80s, he was interviewing uh, seven, seven different evangelists. And he brought all these different pastors and leaders from various denominations, various persuasions, doctrinal persuasions. And he had them on a stage, and they had 4,000 people sitting in this church, and it was a very contentious situation because what they were discussing was the fall of Jimmy Swagger, the fall of PTL with uh, Jim Baker, and if you remember, uh, Tammy Faye Baker, and, and all that happened uh, during the 80s. And he was talking about all these preachers that seemed to have a love for money. And uh, so he was trying to get the, the viewpoint of these, of these uh, different evangelists. Very, very intriguing to watch this uh, 30 years later. And the hope that these men even had for uh, the repentance of men like Jim Baker and Jimmy Swagger and, and uh, Tammy Faye and all, all of that. But as you're sitting there listening, you think to yourself, what, what do these men have to say of any value and of any importance unless, unless they're declaring the apostolic doctrine? And this is why Paul is, is so concerned. This is why he's fighting vehemently for the faith. Because he knows it can be understood. And the closer that we stick to the apostolic doctrine that is given to us in the pages of Scripture, the safer we are. And the more that we begin to say, I think this, and I think this, and I feel this, and I don't know about this, and the less and less we read the Bible and understand the Bible the greater danger we are in, and oh my goodness, the greater danger we are in. Why? Because Satan sends his messengers even into the church. That's what he is saying here. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spout our freedom that we have in Jesus. These false brothers who came in, not interested in the truth of Scripture, so that they might bring us back into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment. Paul's saying to these false teachers, we didn't give them one second. We didn't even listen to them for, for one moment, not at all. So here it is, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is the whole point of the text this morning. This is why we have called it the preserved gospel. Paul's saying, the reason I stood against these false teachers, the reason I stood for the truth, the reason I went into Arabia for three years, the reason it's going to cost him his life, the reason it's cost men of God their lives and women of God their lives down through the centuries is because the truth of the gospel is worth preserving. It's understandable and it's true. The, the question is, do we embrace it? Satan has a wonderful way, an awful way 
an awful way of sending his messengers in. One one last text, uh, First Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter eleven, Second Corinthians chapter eleven, Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse thirteen. Second Corinthians chapter eleven verse thirteen. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Yet these fake guys called Paul calls them super apostles. They come in, try to cause division, subvert the gospel. Verse fourteen. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Can you tell Paul's concern here? Can you hear his heart for the gospel? Can you hear his passion? Verse after verse after verse. The gospel is worth preserving. The gospel is worth understanding. The gospel is worth embracing. The gospel is worth fighting for. I close with this. In case there's any anyone who's not clear, the gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has come to do to save us from our sins. The wages of sin is death. If you're seated here and you're recognizing that you're a sinner, the wages for that sin, what you deserve, there is a real hell. If you were to die today in your sin, you would find yourself awakened to a place of misery, to a place of torment. It's not a place of torture, men running after each other with battle axes or something. It's a place of torment. It's a place of gross unhappiness. Unchangeable hopelessness. And millions die and go there. And they go there because of their sin. So Christ came and he lived the sinless life for us. And he died on a cross for us. And he was buried and he rose again on the third day that anyone who trusts in him, you must trust in him. You must repent of your sins. You must trust Jesus to save you. You must come clean of your sins and come to Christ. And you don't have to do anything. What Paul is stressing here is you don't have to get circumcised to become a Christian. You don't have to get a certain haircut. You don't have to obey certain laws in order to become a Christian. You come by faith alone. Faith alone. You come to Christ in repentance and faith alone. He'll change you. He'll change you. And when we repent of our sins and we have faith in Christ, the faith that is given to us by the Holy Spirit, we're instantly saved, instantly saved, instantly changed. This is the gospel that Paul continues to fight for. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. 
that Paul is so concerned about this. He didn't just say, well, sure, they are adding a few things to the gospel. They're, they're adding some things, but it's no big deal as long as they believe in Jesus. No. Lord, and, and how often do we do that, not only with the gospel, but with all sorts of doctrines? We say, well, it's not that big of a deal. God, forgive us. I pray that you give us the heart of Paul. And the heart of Paul was really the heart of Christ. Zeal had eaten him up for your house. I pray that zeal would eat us up for your house, we pray. That zeal would eat us up for Christ alone. Christ alone who died for us. Christ alone buried for us. Christ alone raised again to give us life. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you've come in here, you're a sinner, you're apart from God. If you died today, you know, you know that you would not know eternal happiness in heaven, but you would go to hell. And your desire is to know Christ. That's your desire. You want to know Christ. You might not know a whole lot. You, you might say, I don't know much about this at all. I don't even know if I understand all that we're talking about. But you do know this. You need Jesus. And if that's you this morning, you say, I need Jesus. I, I want to know him. I want to yield my life to him through faith alone. If that's you, would you raise your hand and just say, I want Christ today. I need him for the first time. First time. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. If you need Christ, I want to wait just a second. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Is there one here at all? One here at all. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I know you're working on hearts this morning, Lord. And I, I pray that out of this group here, even today, that you would save at least one. And, and I, I pray for those of us who are in the desert place today, that we would receive it. We just receive it and just say, Lord, uh, we're here with you. We thank you that you have our hand. You're not going to let us fall. To trust in Jesus, we pray. For his sake, amen and amen. Would you stand with me? Let's close with the doxology of today.